Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I just want to tell you about a new project I'm developing called MedPrep to Go. The idea here is to create a free online and audio USMLE question bank for both Step 1 and Step 2, with the overall goal of reducing the cost of medical education and giving you time back in your day, just like we're doing with this podcast. It's still early in the process, and we're adding a lot of questions and new episodes of the podcast regularly, but I'd love to have you go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you're interested in getting involved in developing questions for this question bank and getting some mentoring directly from me on how to develop questions, I'd love to have you involved. You can email me at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com or you can go over to medpreptogo.com and sign up through the website. So thanks so much for uh, listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hello, listeners. I am Patrick Beeman, founder of Inside the Boards. This is USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Inside the Boards podcast. I'm here today thanks to Elsevier providing a question from their clinical key. So let's break it down. A 30-year-old male has been receiving intravenous nafcillin on an inpatient ward secondary to severe cellulitis of his left leg. On the seventh day of treatment, he develops a fever. Physical exam is positive for generalized erythematous morbilliform rash, with laboratory findings showing an elevated BUN an elevated creatinine, an elevated white blood cell count, elevated eosinophils, and a urinalysis with a specific gravity of 1.013, 1 plus blood, 2 plus protein, with many white blood cells and white blood cell casts on microscopy. Which of the following best explains this patient's clinical change? Is it A, hypovolemia, B, nafcillin exposure, C, recent group A streptococcal infection, or D, rhabdomyolysis? And the correct answer here is choice B, nafcillin exposure. So fever rash and peripheral eosinophilia in a patient with acute kidney injury after 7 to 10 days of antibiotics is suggestive of acute interstitial nephritis. That eosinophilia especially suggests AIN. Penicillins and sulfa-based antibiotics are common causes of AIN, and the presence of urinary white blood cells and white blood cell casts also supports the diagnosis. Another diagnosis to consider is a drug reaction with the eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, although this tends to present after two to six weeks of exposure. Patients with DRESS, the drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, develop fever, morbilliform rash, and eosinophilia, and can develop lymphadenopathy, nephritis, and hepatitis. But since this patient's symptoms occurred within one week, we can go with acute interstitial nephritis based on nafcillin exposure.
The other answer choices, A was hypovolemia, pre-renal acute kidney injury that develops into acute tubular necrosis may have muddy brown casts on urine microscopy, but this patient's eosinophilia, white blood cells in the urine, and white blood cell casts are not consistent with acute tubular necrosis alone. Choice C was a recent group A strep infection. Post-infectious glomerulonephritis can develop as long as three weeks after a group A strep infection and typically presents with a triad of hematuria, edema, and hypertension. On a UA, there may be red blood cell casts and proteinuria. Finally, choice D was rhabdo. Rhabdo can cause AKI due to free radical release, which results in acute tubular necrosis. The BUN to creatinine ratio becomes unreliable due to creatinine release from lysed myocytes. It is not associated, rhabdomyolysis that is, with a rash and the eosinophilia which we see in this case. So, to break it down, patients receiving penicillins or sulfa medications can develop AIN with kidney injury occurring 7 to 10 days following exposure. Other manifestations of acute interstitial nephritis are a morbilliform rash, peripheral eosinophilia with sterile pyuria, white blood cells without evidence of bacterial infection, and white blood cell casts on urine microscopy. Treatment, stop the offending agent, and supportive care. And now, back to USMLE Step 2 Secrets, an Inside the Boards podcast with Dr. Ted O'Connell. This is the nephrology chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. What are the signs and symptoms of acute kidney injury? Signs include increased BUN and creatinine levels, metabolic acidosis, hyperkalemia, tachypnea caused by acidosis and hypervolemia, and hypervolemia, bilateral rails on lung examination, elevated jugular venous pressure, and dilutional hyponatremia. Symptoms include fatigue, nausea and vomiting, anorexia, shortness of breath, mental status changes, and oliguria. Question two, what are the three broad categories of renal failure? Pre-renal, renal slash intrarenal, and post-renal. Question three, define pre-renal failure. What are the causes? How do you recognize it? In pre-renal failure, the kidney is not adequately perfused. The most common cause is hypovolemia from things like dehydration and hemorrhage. Look for a BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 20 and signs of hypovolemia, such as tachycardia, weak pulse, or depressed fontanelle. The fractional excretion of sodium, the fena, will be less than 1% as the body tries to retain sodium. Give intravenous fluids and or blood. Other common pre-renal causes are sepsis, so treat the sepsis and give IV fluids, heart failure, give digoxin and diuretics, liver failure from hepatorenal syndrome, treat supportively, and renal artery stenosis. Question four, define post-renal failure. What causes it? In post-renal failure, urine is blocked from being excreted at some point beyond the kidneys, such as the ureters, prostate, or urethra. The most common cause is benign prostatic hypertrophy, BPH. 
Patients are men over age 50 with BPH symptoms, such as hesitancy, dribbling, weak stream, or nocturia. Ultrasound demonstrates bilateral hydronephrosis. Treat with catheterization, suprapubic if necessary, to relieve the obstruction and prevent further renal damage. Alpha blockers such as terazosin or a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor such as finasteride can improve the symptoms, and surgery should be considered, that is, a transurethral resection of the prostate. Other causes are nephrolithiasis, but remember that stones generally have to be bilateral to cause renal failure. Retroperitoneal fibrosis, watch for a history of radiation therapy or methosurgide, bromocryptine, methyl dopa, or hydralazine use. And finally, consider pelvic and intra-abdominal malignancies. Question five, what is the most common cause of intrarenal failure? Intrarenal failure, which results from a problem within the kidney itself, is most commonly due to acute tubular necrosis from various causes. Question six, what do you need to know about intravenous contrast and renal failure? Intravenous contrast can precipitate renal failure, usually in diabetic patients and patients with pre-existing renal disease. Avoid contrast in such patients if possible. If you must give intravenous contrast, administer intravenous hydration before and after the contrast is given and avoid the use of NSAIDs to decrease the chance of renal failure. The data on the use of acetylcysteine are conflicting. Question 7. True or false? Muscle breakdown can cause renal failure. True. Myoglobinuria or rhabdomyolysis due to strenuous exercise such as running marathons and also alcohol, burns, muscle trauma, and muscle compression such as prolonged immobilization after a fall, heat stroke, and neuroleptic malignant syndrome may cause renal failure. The cellular debris that results from muscle breakdown plugs the renal filtration system. Look for very high levels of creatine phosphokinase, CPK. Urinalysis may reveal red-colored urine that is positive for blood on dipstick, caused by the heme contained in myoglobin, but there are no red blood cells. Treat with aggressive hydration. Alkalinization of the urine with bicarbonate may be helpful in severe cases. Diuretics may be helpful if the patient develops volume overload, but have not been shown to be useful in preventing acute kidney injury. Monitor calcium and potassium levels carefully during treatment of rhabdomyolysis. Question 8. What medications commonly cause renal insufficiency or failure? Chronic use of NSAIDs may cause acute tubular necrosis or papillary necrosis. Cyclosporin, aminoglycosides, and methicillin. Question 9. Define nephritic syndrome. What is the classic cause? How is it treated? Nephritic syndrome is generally defined as oliguria, azotemia, a rising BUN to creatinine ratio, hypertension, and hematuria. The patient may have some degree of proteinuria, but not in the nephrotic range. The classic cause is post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Treatment is supportive and includes control of hypertension and maintenance of urine output with IV fluids and diuretics. Question 10. Define good pasture syndrome. How does it present? Good pasture syndrome, a cause of rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, is due to the presence of measurable antiglomerular basement membrane antibodies, 
which cause a linear immunofluorescence pattern on renal biopsy. These antibodies react with and damage both the kidneys and the lungs. Look for a young man with hemoptysis, dyspnea, and renal failure. Treat with steroids and cyclophosphamide. Question 11. Define granulomatosis with polyangiitis, formerly called Wegener granulomatosis. How does it present? Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, formerly called Wegener granulomatosis, is a vasculitis that affects the lungs and kidneys. Look for nasal involvement, such as bloody nose and nasal perforation, or hemoptysis and pleurisy as presenting symptoms, along with renal disease. Patients test positive for ANCA, anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibody titers. Treat with cyclophosphamide and glucocorticoids. Methotrexate is an alternative. Question 12. How do you recognize post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, PSGN? How is it treated? PSGN occurs most commonly after streptococcal skin infection, but may also occur after pharyngitis. Patients are usually children and generally have a history of infection with a nephritogenic strain of streptococcus species one to three weeks previously and abrupt onset of edema, especially periorbital, hypertension, proteinuria, mild, not in the nephrotic range, hematuria with red blood cell casts, and elevated BUN and creatinine. Red blood cell casts on urinalysis confirm the diagnosis of nephritic syndrome. Laboratory tests that support a PSGN diagnosis include proof of recent streptococcal infection, for example, anti-streptolysin O and anti-DNase B titers, and evidence of complement-mediated glomerular inflammation with low C3 and C4 levels. Treat supportively. Control blood pressure and use diuretics for severe edema. Unlike rheumatic fever, treatment of the initial streptococcal infection does not reduce the incidence of PSGN. Nonetheless, any residual infection should be treated with antibiotics. Another nephritic condition, IgA nephropathy, can occur within one to two days of an upper respiratory tract infection or viral pharyngitis and is hence termed synpharyngitic. The differentiation on the USMLE would be the delay of only a few days from pharyngitis to nephritic syndrome in IgA nephropathy versus the delay of a few weeks for PSGN. Question 13. What are the indications for dialysis in patients with renal failure? When renal failure is present, first try to determine the cause and fix it, if possible, to correct the renal failure. Indications for acute dialysis are remembered by the mnemonic AEIOU. Acidosis, A. Severe metabolic, roughly a pH of less than 7.2. E for electrolytes. Hyperkalemia, typically greater than 6.5 milliequivalents per liter or rapidly rising potassium levels. I for ingestion of a dialyzable drug or toxin. O for overload. And U for uremia. And this includes uremic pericarditis or encephalopathy. Question 14. Define nephrotic syndrome. What causes it? How is it diagnosed? Nephrotic syndrome is defined by proteinuria greater than 3.5 grams per day, hypoalbuminemia, edema, 
The classic pattern is morning periorbital edema and hyperlipidemia with lipiduria. In children, it is usually due to minimal change disease, podocytes with missing feet on electron microscopy, which often follows an infection. Measure 24-hour urine protein or spot urine protein to creatinine ratio to confirm the diagnosis. Treat with steroids. Causes in adults include membranous nephropathy, diabetes, hepatitis B, amyloidosis, lupus erythematosus, and drugs such as penicillamine and captopril. Question 15. What causes chronic renal failure, CRF? Any of the causes of acute renal failure can cause CRF if the insult is severe or prolonged. Most cases of CRF are due to diabetes mellitus, the leading cause, or hypertension, the second most common cause. A popular cause on the Step 2 exam is polycystic kidney disease. Watch for multiple cysts in the kidney and look for a positive family history. It's usually autosomal dominant. The autosomal recessive form presents in children. Also look for hypertension, hematuria, palpable renal masses, berry aneurysms in the circle of Willis, and cysts in the liver. Question 16. What metabolic derangements are seen in chronic renal failure? Azotemia with high levels of BUN and creatinine, metabolic acidosis, hyperkalemia, fluid retention, which may cause hypertension, edema, congestive heart failure, and pulmonary edema, hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia, impaired vitamin D production, bone loss leads to renal osteodystrophy, anemia due to lack of erythropoietin, give synthetic erythropoietin to correct, anorexia, nausea, and vomiting from buildup of toxins, central nervous system disturbances, mental status changes, and even convulsions or coma from toxin buildup, bleeding due to disordered platelet function, uremic pericarditis, a friction rub may be heard, skin pigmentation and pruritus, the skin turns yellowish-brown and itches because of metabolic byproducts, and increased susceptibility to infection due to decreased cellular immunity. Question 17. How is CRF treated? Treat CRF with regular hemodialysis, usually three times per week, water-soluble vitamins, which are removed during dialysis, phosphate restriction, and binders, calcium carbonate, calcium acetate, or cevelomer, erythropoietin as needed, and hypertension control. The only cure is renal transplant. Question 18. What are the signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection, UTI? What are the most likely organisms? Signs and symptoms include urgency, dysuria, suprapubic and or low back pain, and low-grade fever. UTIs are usually caused by E. coli, 75 to 85% of cases, but may also be caused by Staphylococcus saprophyticus or Proteus, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, or Enterococcus species, or other enteric organisms. Patients who acquire UTIs in the hospital or from a chronic indwelling Foley catheter are more likely to have organ other organisms besides E. coli. Question 19. What factors increase the likelihood of UTIs? Female gender and conditions that promote urinary stasis, such as BPH, 
pregnancy, stones, neurogenic bladder, vesicourethral reflux, or bacterial colonization, such as indwelling catheter, fecal incontinence, and surgical instrumentation, all predisposed to UTI. Question 20. How do you diagnose and treat UTIs? The gold standard for diagnosis is a positive urine culture with at least 100,000 colony-forming units. That's a measure of bacterial load of a specific bacteria. At the least, get a midstream sample. The best method is a catheterized sample or suprapubic tap. Urinalysis shows white blood cells, bacteria on gram stain of the urine, positive leukocyte esterase, and or positive nitrite. Empiric treatment is usually based on symptoms and urinalysis while awaiting culture results. Commonly used antibiotics include trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, amoxicillin, nitrofurantoin, ciprofloxacin, or a first-generation cephalosporin. Question 21. Why are UTIs in children and males of special concern? In children, a UTI is cause for concern because it may be the presenting symptom of a genitourinary malformation. The most common examples are vesicourethral reflux and posterior urethral valves. Urine culture should be obtained. Order an ultrasound and either avoiding cystourethrogram, VCUG, or radionuclide cystogram, RNC, to evaluate the urinary tract in any child two months to two years with a first UTI. Recommendations for imaging in older children are less clear-cut. If a male has symptoms and a urinalysis suggestive of a UTI, consider the possibility of prostatitis. The prostate may be tender and boggy on exam. Bacterial prostatitis requires six weeks of antibiotics to ensure eradication. Question 22. True or false? You should treat asymptomatic bacteria in most patients. False. The exception is a pregnant patient in whom asymptomatic bacteria is treated because of the high risk of progression to pyelonephritis. Use antibiotics that are safe in pregnancy, such as penicillins. Question 23. How does pyelonephritis usually occur? What are the signs and symptoms? How is it treated? Pyelonephritis is most often due to an ascending UTI caused by E. coli in greater than 80% of cases. Patients present with high fever, shaking chills, costovertebral angle tenderness, flank pain, and or UTI symptoms. Order urinalysis and urine and blood cultures to establish the diagnosis, but treat this life-threatening infection on an inpatient basis with IV antibiotics while awaiting results. A typical regimen consists of an oral fluoroquinolone or IV ceftriaxone or fluoroquinolone in uncomplicated pyelonephritis. Always choose an antibiotic regimen with good E. coli coverage. Question 24. How do you differentiate among the common pediatric hematologic disorders that affect the kidney? We're going to review hemolytic uremic syndrome, HUS, Henoch-Schonlein purpura, HSP, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, and idiopathic thrombocytopenia, ITP. The most common age of HUS is children, HSP, children, TTP, young adults, and ITP, children or adults.
previous infection, diarrhea with E. coli and HUS, URI in HSP, none in TTP, and viral, especially in children, in ITP. The red blood cell count is low in HUS, normal in HSP, low in TTP, and normal in ITP. Platelet count, low in HUS, normal in HSP, low in ITP and TTP. Peripheral smear shows hemolysis in HUS, is normal in HSP, shows hemolysis in TTP, and is normal in ITP. The kidney effects are acute renal failure and hematuria in HUS, hematuria in HSP, acute renal failure and proteinuria in TTP, and none in ITP. The treatment is supportive in HUS and HSP. In TTP, it's plasmapheresis and NSAIDs and no platelets. In ITP, treatment is steroids and splenectomy if drugs fail. The key differential points in HUS are age and diarrhea. In HSP, it's rash, abdominal pain, arthritis, and melana. In TTP, it's central nervous system changes and age, and in ITP, antiplatelet antibodies. Question 25. Which is more likely to be seen on a plain abdominal radiograph, kidney stones or gallbladder stones? Kidney stones, which more commonly calcify, are more likely to be seen than gallstones. Question 26. What are the signs and symptoms of renal stones? How are they diagnosed and treated? Kidney stones, or nephrolithiasis, generally present with severe, intermittent, unilateral flank and or groin pain when the stone dislodges and gets stuck in the ureter, called ureterolithiasis. Most stones can be seen on abdominal radiographs and are composed of calcium. Renal ultrasound, or CT scan, can be used to detect a stone if clinical suspicion is high, but plain abdominal radiographs are negative. Symptomatic urolithiasis should be treated with lots of hydration and pain control to see if the stone will pass. Most stones less than 5 millimeters will pass on their own. If the stone does not pass, it needs to be removed surgically, preferably endoscopically, or by lithotripsy. Question 27. What causes kidney stones? Nephrolithiasis is often idiopathic, but on the step 2 exam, watch for one of the following underlying disorders that predispose to the development of kidney stones. 1. Hypercalcemia, due to hyperparathyroidism or malignancy, resulting in calcium stones. 2. Infection, from ammonia-producing bugs, such as proteus species or staphylococci. Look for staghorn calculi, which are large stones composed of magnesium, ammonia, and phosphate, or struvite, that fill the renal calicial system. 3. Hyperuricemia, uric acid stones due to gout or leukemia treatment. Allopurinol and intravenous hydration are given before leukemia chemotherapy to prevent this complication. 4. Cystinuria or aminoaciduria should be suspected if the stone is made of cysteine or you are presented with a repetitive stone-forming patient. 
Note, send any recovered stones to the lab for stone analysis to determine the type of stone. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.